0: The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. If you call out for insight, if you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as in treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This morning's scripture reading is taken from James chapter 1. In the blue pew bibles that's found near the end of the bible on page 1043 again the text is James chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 page 1043 hear now the word of the Lord James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations greetings consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trial of many kinds That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kirk. We um, are jumping into the book of James this morning, last Sunday. Uh, We gave a general introduction to the idea of wisdom and to uh, the book of James. And this Sunday we'll be jumping into the verses that Kirk just read for us, if you have, uh, if you have that text and keep it open, um, our text this morning is, is remarkable. I mean, it's, in fact, it's to me one of the most remarkable passages in the New Testament. Um, let's see. I, I think this is an old one. I me to swap here. Thank you. Um, James has uh, he, James, uh, in, this, in these verses, speaks of two universal experiences. Two, two things that you and I, or no care where you are or when you are, something that we experience, two things that we all go through. First, it speaks of suffering. It speaks of suffering. It speaks of trials. So it speaks of hardships. But secondly, it speaks of the feeling that we all have at one time or another of not being good enough. So, for example, look in verse 2. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's the first idea, the idea of suffering, of struggle, of trials, of hardships. But then toward the very end in verse, uh, well, not the very end, but in, in verse, um, verse 4, it says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete See, the assumption is that you and I are not complete, that we're missing something, that there is a sense of, of incompleteness, of inadequacy. I don't know about you, but that's often how I feel. I'm in the midst of hardships. I'm struggling. It's just always, there's always some struggle, always something in my life that I'm facing that's difficult. And right there with it, there's this feeling of inadequacy of not being enough, of not being really ready, not having what I need to face the day. So these two human experiences of not feeling good enough, of, of facing bad things in our lives, that this is, this, is what, this is where you and I live, it's where we camp out. We experience on a daily basis, both crisis and incompleteness. And it's in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of that incompleteness that we wonder, is our pain pointless? Is there any point to this? I feel so inadequate. I feel so unprepared to face this crisis. It just doesn't seem like any of this is going anywhere. In fact, it's something that in my own life, I'm so quick to do. I'm so quick to judge God. I'm so quick to just just say, you know, what in the world, how could any good come from this? I was driving to lunch just yesterday. I was late and I, was, um, I had lost on my mind and I was on the interstate and I missed the exit. And I, was, I, I just got livid. I was so mad. And I was like, what's the point of missing an exit? I'm already late. How is this? god what how is i'm just a small little thing a small little trial totally failed (laughs) totally failed but then there are bigger things right there's and what's amazing is james here speaks of trials at different levels trials not only in the love of Christ, trials that are small like mixing exit trials that are small like your your computer not working trials that are small like a cold common cold i get sick and i think what's the point of being sick it's so dumb just, just, I mean, really? Really? Is this necessary, God? So trials that are small, trials that are actually larger, medium-sized trials, trials that really, that really give you pause. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's getting you know, a real, I'll t- talk in a moment here, but a friend of mine shared with me it's a major, major setback in his career. And it's like, really? That's so unfair. If anyone deserves that job, he does. It was given to some, well, or you know, some whatever person with, with good connections. But then there's real crises, real trials. Trials are not just simply trivial. They're not just simply trouble, like difficult, but they're actually tragic. The loss of a loved one. In fact, we'll, in a little bit here, I'll talk about a, a man who uh, lost, he and his wife lost their son in a tragic mountain climbing accident what do you do with all of that? I mean, this is what I want to, my hope for you this morning. What I'll offer you this morning is that James and, and Christianity in general, but James is, is what's so profound about this passage that James takes those two universal experiences of incompleteness, regular fe- feeling of being incomplete and a regular feeling of crisis and he puts the two together. They come together in, in, for James in this life-giving way. See, for James, with real faith, crisis completes us. Did you hear that? That crisis, the crisis that we always have and the incompleteness that we always feel, there's actually a relationship between those two. So that crisis is actually the thing that's going to complete us if we have faith. It's an amazing idea. And in other words, the incompleteness that I feel actually has something to do with, something very important to do with the crisis that I'm experiencing and vice versa. That this crisis that is as is here isn't just random. It's not just, some, some just, just um, something that's just here that is, is there to get in my way. It's not simply an obstacle. It's actually there in a way that is, has purpose, that has meaning, and is intended to complete me to make me feel less adequate, less vulnerable. For James, with real faith, crisis completes us. And because of that, James says that crisis is cause for real joy, real joy. Let me just, um, those of you, I hope some of you are, 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 have been reading through this uh, wonderful devotional. We're reading through this as a congregation. And I want you to give you sort of a window of getting into this this, this chapter on January 11th, the reading. I think it was the 11th, if I remember. No, I'm sorry, the 10th, January 10th. We read this. This is so profound. Not only is parenting advice, but it's understanding how the Christian life works, how God our Father is parenting us. Keller writes, child psychologist Jerome Kagan discovered that children are born with one of three basic temperaments that determine how they instinctively respond to difficulty. Some respond, says, this, says Kagan, some, some children respond with anxiety and withdrawal. Some respond to difficulty with aggression and assertiveness and assertive action. And some respond to difficulty with optimism and an effort to win, win through, uh, to, I'm sorry, an effort to win, uh, win through by being social. And cordial, and then he says each each default or each de- default works well in some situations, but Kagan argued that unless parents intervene, children's natural temperament will dominate, and they won't learn how to act wisely in situations in which their habitual response is inappropriate or even deadly. In other words, we are naturally obstinate and unwise. We're not naturally immature. We're not ready to face life. And unless a parent intervenes, unless a parent acts or takes action and shapes and molds a child, that child will not reach the maturity, the completeness that they need to survive the world, to navigate the world successfully. And that's not just true for children. That's true for God's children. And he brings hardship, says James, into our lives to mature and to complete us. Let me give an example of what I mean. My brother, my older brother, Brian, um, is uh, also a pastor like me. He, um, he lives in Montana. And uh, one of the things that he did four or five years ago, um, they needed a new car and they were wrestling with what kind of car to get. And Brian, and Brian said, well, we live, we live in Montana. Uh, we're in those mountains all around us. And so we're gonna get a, a, a Toyota forerunner. And we're not gonna get a forerunner, we're gonna get a forerunner that has an off-road package on it. And not only that, we're, we're gonna get a forerunner runner with an off-road package, we're actually gonna get like we're gonna get some like um, custom tires that are you know, just bigger, you know, larger radius, and we're gonna put those on there. And my brother has done this for a number of years now, like on his off days, when he wants to just just uh, sort of check out for a while, he literally jumps in his forerunner and heads off to the mountains. And I mean head off to the mountains. Like, he, he has this app, I think, that he uses that traces where he goes, because, I mean, he's not on roads. He's, he's just, he's off you doing whatever. And I remember the first time, it was two or three years ago, that I went with him, and he, um, I was amazed by I was amazed. We went off road, and I was like, whoa, 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 careful, careful. He's like, no, we're good. We're good. And then we went over something else, similar terrain, and I was like, whoa, whoa, are we going to stuck He goes, no, no, we're good. And then he said, why don't you jump out and take it for a spin? So I, I got in the car, and I, I, we heard in the truck, and I started to drive around, and I, I was so careful. I was like, well, are you sure we can do that? He says, yeah, yeah, we'll be good. I said, well, what about this? are we going to get stuck here? No, 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 we're good. And I finally kept on, I kept on sort of making objections, and he turned to me and said, Bruce, this is what the truck was made for. It was made for this kind of thing. It was amazing. Like we, we kept going to rocks, we high centered a few times, and we were going through river, or small rivers. It was amazing what that truck could handle. And what was, it was, it was great is every time we went through something, like a tr- you know, a difficult terrain that I, I thought, you know we're not gonna be able to do this, and we did it. You know what my response was? It was joy. <laughs> I can't believe we just went through that. Can you believe it? And Brian said, yeah, yeah absolutely. And there were a couple of times where we actually encountered things we didn't realize that we just didn't see it coming. We thought we knew it was going to happen. It was unexpected. And even then, the truck had no problem traversing it. And it was in those moments of unexpected, unexpected difficulty that when we recognized that the car could, the truck could handle it, that our joy was even greater. Are you with me? See, listen, your faith, is not made to avoid the difficulties, the difficult terrain in life. Your faith is made to run right through it. When we encounter difficulty in life, Jesus is there to say, you know what? Your faith was made for this. And instead of turning around, and it's, it's something that Brian, just, just last week, I called him, I was, wanted to share this illustration and say, hey, do I understand this right? And he said, yeah, he said, one of the things, too, is when I'm by myself, you're by yourself and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you come to a certain situation, and you have to sort of evaluate D- do I turn around or do I risk getting stuck in the middle of nowhere? So this uncertainty. And he says, there's always this idea of being, being wise and shrewd about it. Because overwhelmingly, he says, I, I'm able just to pass through, and it's just no problem. That, that truck can go anywhere. And even when it does get stuck, he has these things called recovery boards that he uses that actually help him get out of, out of mud or something like that. But what I want you to see in all of this is the idea is that on the other side, if we don't turn back in unbelief, on the other side of suffering and trial is joy. And we're going to see why that's the case. And let me ask, before we get into the text here, how many, how many of you know persons who, who at one time profess faith in Christ and don't anymore? Raise your hand. Okay, raise them high. I'm to, I'm to, everyone, I don't want the people to see. How many of you know Christians who at one time profess faith and don't, don't anymore? It's quite a few. It's quite a few. Let me ask you, do you know if your faith is real or not? Are you wondering that yourself? Are you saying, you know, is my faith really real? See, here's the thing. It's possible to have a fake faith, a false faith. And let me ask you, is yours real? Is it just some sort of, well, yeah, back in you know, third grade, I camped, I gave my faith to Jesus, I prayed the prayer. Or is it a real, vibrant living faith. Because I'll tell you, one of the greatest signs of a real faith is, are you ready for this? It's joy. It's joy. So you want to put your faith to the test. Faith is put to the test. We learn about our faith through trials, through hardship. And James is going to show us just some brilliant wisdom here about how faith reveals, about how trials reveal who we really are. So in crisis, let's walk through this text now. In crisis, true faith, the first thing that true faith does, that in crisis, true faith is confident. Look in verse 2a. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. True faith in the midst of crisis or in response to crisis is confident. That idea of joy here isn't just some sort of happy, clappy, I'm just so happy this happened. That's not what James is saying. It's a confidence, a confidence. It's an assurance that, that there is gonna be good, something good that comes out of this. So true faith is in the midst of crisis, is confident, not critical, not complaining. Now, what I'm not saying is that true faith in the midst of crisis doesn't cry. You can be confident and cry at the same time. What did we just do earlier in the service? We offered up to God prayers of lament, okay? There is a world of difference between grumbling and griping and grieving. Grieving is saying, God, this is so hard. I'm in deeper than I can get. I'm not in control here, I'm scared. I'm struggling, I don't know what's gonna happen. I have no more strength left. It just feels like it's over for me. That's completely legitimate. But grieving is not grumbling. Crying is not being critical or complaining. James here is exhorting us in the midst of crisis, when crisis hits, the first thing to do is real faith is confident. And why is it confident? He explains here. It's confident because crises do three things. They, they, clear, they bring clarity, they bring constancy, and they bring completeness. Look what he says here. This is so important. He says, crisis, when we, are, when we actually lean on the Lord, when we actually rely on Him, and I'll explain more what faith is in a second here, but with Christ, with faith, trial brings first and foremost clarity. Look at the rest of the verse. verse here in verse 2, he says, uh, "Verse sorry, verse 3. He says, "Because why should we rejoice? Why should we be confident? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So what is he saying? He's saying that crisis actually puts our faith to the test. It clarifies our faith. You want to know if your faith is real or not. You want to know the degree to which you have a real faith simply have experienced crises. See, crisis and sufferings are, are great occasions for temptation. And we find out who we really are in the midst of it. If you want to know if your faith is real, you enter into crisis. See, the, again, mention this idea that, that there is a, a real... Turn, if you would, to the left. Turn the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to page 833, if you're following in your pew Bible, 833... Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. So faith, there's hard, so crisis clarifies our faith. It, it t- puts our faith to the test. James here is speaking of the testing of your faith. Look in chapter 7, verse 22. Again, it's page 833. Verse 20, I'm sorry, is it 22? Tw- yeah, I think it is. No, I'm sorry, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Do you see that's faith? Faith is, sort of this, the faith is allegiance to the Lord. It's this commitment to the Lord. It's calling Jesus Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? So There's a sense of the possibility of a fake faith. There's a possibility of a weak faith. And struggle clarifies the nature of our faith. See, true faith, listen to this, true faith is surrendering to Jesus True faith is being on His side, no matter what. Because see, in crisis there is a clarifying that leads to confession. I pass the exit. I get angry. Get frustrated. I have to confess. You know, Jesus, I'm. You know, I forgive my impatience. Forgive my self-importance. Forgive the way that I just so quickly just fly off the handle. Thank you for this reminder of how unimportant I am. Thank you for this reminder of how not in control I am. I don't want to be in control. Thank you for this small trial. See, crisis clarifies so that we can confess and recommit ourselves to the Lord. So for Christ, that's the first thing. So we, we are confident. We have a confidence because we know that trials, first, they, they, they clarify, they bring clarity. But second, they bring constancy. Look at what he says here again. We're going to turn back to James chapter 1. Look what he says next. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It produces a constancy. The idea is that that when we have been, when we're struggling, when when our faith has been clarified, as we recommit to the Lord, we see him at work and we become more constant, more committed we become more unafraid. Think back to the illustration that I used of driving in the back, driving off-road in Montana. As we go through each difficult terrain and we're able to navigate it successfully, there's this sense of, hey, well, if we can make it through that, we can make it through anything, right? If we can make it through that hardship in our marriage, huh, there's a sense of endurance. If I can make it through that hardship in my health, there's a sense of endurance, a sense of constancy. And with that constancy comes a sense of joy. Hey, we made it through. I, my faith didn't give way. There's, there's a reality here. I, my faith has been clarified. I've seen where I don't have faith, where I do have faith. I've grown, I've repented, I've confessed, I've grown. And now there's a sense of constancy. I look in the rearview mirror and say, hey, we made it through. We can endure to true faith over time through testing. True faith becomes fearless. And that fearlessness is so enviable. Do you know people like this? Real veterans in the faith. Things happen, difficulties, hardships. You know, job difficult, job loss, whatever it might be. And there's a sense of, again, they're not fake. They're not like, oh, this is so wonderful. I'm just so happy they're like, you know, God's going to provide. I've been through this before. God's going to be at work here. I don't know. I'm in the midst of conflict, struggles, whatever it is, but he's going to be at work. I've been through this before. There's a sense of constancy that trials produce over time. One of my daughters recently was talking to, again, faith is fearless. And my, one, of my, one of my daughters recently was talking to some of the friends and somehow death came up. And my daughter said, you know what? Just because of my faith, I'm, I'm not afraid of dying. I was not afraid of it. There was this constancy, this fearlessness of future struggle. And her friends were like, are you kidding me? Like, for real? They were envious of the faith, a faith that, that is fearless. See, in Philippians 1, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says later, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That confidence, that fearlessness. Paul learned that through trial, through hardship. He wrote it from prison. So, faith what does faith do? Mm-hmm. With, with, with faith, trial, trials bring clarity, they bring a constancy, and finally, they bring a completeness. Listen to what he says here. and mean, there's 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 a, there's, a, there's a sort of a cause and effect to each one of these. When our faith is tried and it's clarified, that leads to a constancy. And in verse verse three, Paul says that. Be, verse four, he says, "Let perseverance or that constancy finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything." Mm-hmm. Do you see where this is going? So first, a, a crisis comes. My faith is clarified then there's a constancy that comes as a result of multiple trials. And through that, that constancy is changing me, is shaping me. It's completing me. It's completing me. And I want to ask the question, this is very important, how does crisis complete us? How does it complete us? First, crisis makes us sympathizers. It makes us into people who actually care about others. When you are going through suffering, when you've been through trials, your ability to sympathize with others just goes through the roof. Suffering creates solidarity. There's a sense that I'm not so different from you. That we are actually in this together. Suffering creates solidarity, and until then, we live in a bubble. We live sheltered lives, and we don't relate to anyone else. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff has written a beautiful book. He's a was a, was or a, is a, a Christian philosopher theologian. He writes a book. He, he, um, he said when he was, this is a number of years ago now, but his, his son was in his mid 20s, was over in Europe rock climbing, and fell to his death. And he writes a book called Lament for a Son. I would just commend it to all of you. It's, a, it's an amazing read. You want to see faith under trial, under, under tragedy? Here's his faith. It's so honest. And he writes at one point he says, The suffering of the world. Because of his son's death, the suffering of the world has worked its way deeper inside me. Isn't that beautiful? I never knew, he writes, that sorrow could be like this. Six months before my son's death, I had gone to the funeral of a 23-year-old son of one of our friends. I tried to imagine the quality of their grief at the funeral. I know now that I failed miserably. See, when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, we, we become more complete because we're more, we become, become more able to sympathize with others. Not only do we become sympathizers, we become more complete by becoming servants. See, when we go through trials and tribulations, we begin to realize that with faith, life is not about us. Not, not about us. Crisis kills our carelessness for others. It kills our love of control. We're more willing to actually enter into the hardships of others, the struggles of others, not knowing what's going to happen. That's one of the biggest things that keeps us from serving others. Well, what's going to happen? We we don't want to be in control. We want to enter into the suffering of others, and we don't know what's going to happen. So we don't know if everything's going to be okay, and so we want to be in control. And when we are in crisis, when we grow in that crisis, we grow as servants, and we are more willing to help others. So how are we made complete? By becoming sympathizers, by becoming servants. And finally, perhaps most importantly, we become sages, sages, what's a sage? Someone who's not just book smart, someone who is incredibly insightful street smarts, if you will, someone who is street smart, who understands how the world works. Through suffering, we become sages, and we begin to see, to really see the world. Let me quote Wolterstorff again. He talks about his son's death, and, he's, and he, at one point in, 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 the, in the lament, he says, tears, we are told, tears are signs of weakness. And he says, I don't care. That's such a lie. And he says, he says I don't care. He says, I mean, this is a very defiantly, he says, from now on, I shall look at the world through tears perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Isn't that beautiful? When you are suffering, when you are struggling, you begin to see everything more clearly. You begin to see, we begin to see ourselves more clearly. We discover who we really are. Until we've been through suffering, we really don't know who we are. We begin to see through Oh, so much in the world, we see through what's fake and what's worthless. And we see through all what is fake, we, we see through it to what is real, to what is worthwhile. We begin to understand what's important in life. Tragically, Walter Storff writes this, what, what any person writes would, would say really when they have lost a loved one. He says of his son, quote, we took him too much for granted. Perhaps we take each other too much for granted. The routines of life distract us. Our own pursuits make us oblivious. Our anxieties and sorrows unmindful. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. We do not treasure each other enough. It's so true. And it took the loss of his son from the, to, to, to receive that sage-like wisdom, the ability to see what's really important in life. So suffering makes us sympathizers, it makes us servants, it makes us sages with the ability to see, to see through, to see to what is real. But it makes us sages, most importantly, in our ability to see our Savior, that he suffered inestimably. He suffered for us in the name of love. Isaiah writes, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We begin to, as we experience struggle and and, and the trials of life, we see how unfair life is. Life is so incredibly unfair. And that gives us the window into seeing who Jesus is. No one was treated more unfairly than Jesus. It's in suffering that we see our Savior. We develop that true sagacity, that true wisdom. We become sages because we're able to see who Jesus really is. No one was treated more unfairly than Jesus, and no one trusted God more fully than Jesus. So we become sages. Do you want to be made complete? Do you want your crises to complete you? Or don't you want to grow? Don't you want to be that sort of person in that truck of faith? You're driving along, you see some difficult train, you think, somehow we're going to make it through this. I know God is greater. I know he's present. I know he's at work. He's here. And it's going to be difficult, but we're going to do it. Now let me ask you, what if your suffering isn't making you into a sage? What if your crisis isn't completing you? Well, James talks about that in the next verses here. See, in crisis, true faith is confident. But it's not only confident. True faith in crisis calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom. Look at what he goes on to say here in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you you don't see what's going on, how God is at work in the crises and the trials, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Listen to this. Who gives generously to all without finding faults, and it will be given to you. Isn't that an amazing promise? Because think, you think, in this trial, I've I've, I've failed so miserably. In this suffering, I have responded so faithlessly, so critically, with all manner of complaining. There is no way he's going to hear me. And James anticipates all of that. Look at what he says in in the second half of verse 5. God will give us wisdom, and he will do it. Did you see the the, the various descriptions of God here? It's so amazing. You should ask God who gives, first of all, he says, without any, the word generously, it's more the word sincerely. Okay, it's this idea, there's no fine print. He's going to give it to you straightforward. It's just simple. You ask, he'll give no fine print, no, connect, no strings attached, it's he will give it to you. So he's going to give it to us with no fine print, and then he's going to give it to, to us with no favoritism. Look what he says, he gives generously to whom? To all. To all. It doesn't matter what age you are. Listen, if you're little day, you're here today, and you're in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Ask God for wisdom. I'll talk more about that in a second. So he gives, first of all, with no fine print. Second, he gives without, without any favoritism. And third, he gives without fault-finding or without making fun of us. He gives to all without finding fault. He doesn't sit there, oh, finally you're here. Finally, you came to ask for wisdom. Oh, no, he doesn't sit there and just sort of pick at us and finding fault with us. I can't believe you've handed this trial so miserably, you failure. He doesn't do that. We go to him. True faith goes in the midst of its weakness and its hardship and failure, and it's says, God, I know I failed, but I need wisdom. Will you please give me wisdom? Now, listen, to those of you who are little, I want me to hear this. When I was a kid, I was about four or five years old, I think, my mom was reading to me from the Bible, and she was reading from passage in 1 Kings chapter 3. It's a passage where King Solomon When God comes to King Solomon, he says, Solomon, ask me for anything. And you know what Solomon asked him for? He asked God for wisdom. He asked him for wisdom. My mom, she turned to me, and she said, Bruce, you know what you should do every day for the rest of your life? You should get up in the morning and ask God for wisdom. And it hasn't been every morning, but it's been most every morning. And that has served me so well. Kids, would you want to do that? Parents, would you want to do it? Are we asking God daily for wisdom, for discernment, to help us see how he is completing us in the various crises of our lives? But there is one catch, the very important catch. He goes on here in verses 6 and 8. He says, you can call for wisdom, you can seek wisdom, but you must recommit yourself. Look what he says in verses 6 through 8. He's very strong on this. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. You must have faith. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Jesus, Paul, James is saying something very important here. Wisdom is a weapon. It's a weapon against the forces of darkness. It is a weapon against despair. It is a weapon of incredibly powerful magnitude. And here's the thing. When we ask God for wisdom, he's not going to give it to us if we're not on his side. Last night, we were there's a family, or we are just watching a fun movie, or watching an old Harrison Ford movie called, called Air Force One. It's basically, you know, Harrison Ford plays this amazing president and uh, he's very strong against terrorism while these terrorists hijack Air Force One. And, uh, and how did the terrorists get on Air Force One? Well, because there's actually, among the Secret Service guys, there's this one guy, Secret Service guy, who is, um, who is actually a terrorist. I mean, he's gone to their side, sort of, he's defected, he's, he's, not a, he's not on the president's side. And toward the end of the movie, the president doesn't know this yet, Harrison Ford actually gives the double agent a gun. He gives him a weapon. And of course, we all go, oh, like, I can't believe he gave the guy a gun. He doesn't know it, but he's not on his side. Listen, God is not going to give us wisdom if we're not on his side. He's not going to give us a weapon to fight suffering and trial and struggle and evil if we're not actually on board. So in crisis, true faith, it's confident. It's confident. Because it's no, it knows that God is present, completing us through that crisis. We may not know yet how, but it's confident. The truth rate faith not only is confident, it cries out or calls out for wisdom, being fully committed to the Lord. And this is the last part that I want you to get before we stop here. The true faith, true faith is confident, it calls out, and it's committed, but it's committed as a community. It's as a community. James here is exhorting the community as a whole. You will not experience the completeness that James is talking about if you seek to address your crises by yourself. I can't emphasize that enough. Listen to this. On my own, I will be able to see the meaning, the goodness the growth that comes from my problems, that comes from my pain, at best four or five years later, maybe as many as 10 years later, which is to say too late. And maybe I'll never see them, but it's among friends, among real community, among a committed community of believers, among a small group, of people who are praying for each other, encouraging each other, sharing their hardships, sharing their trials. It's through those persons, through community, through counseling, through good counselors that God gives us the wisdom to see sooner than later how he's growing us. So if you're sitting there thinking, no, know, I've, I've had trials all kinds in my life right now. I don't feel God growing. I don't feel his presence. I don't feel like he's completing me. I'm gonna ask you, are you alone in them? Does anyone else know about them? Are you, are you struggling in community? So let me conclude, just, just to summarize here. When things go south, those unexpected hardships, when trials come into our lives, these are the things to do, the first thing to do. When things go south, first, you give thanks. You give thanks, you, you be confident, you be joyful, you give thanks. The second thing you do is you, you get wisdom. You ask God for wisdom. Tomorrow, something's going to happen unexpectedly. You're not going to see it coming. And you go, oh, wait. Hey, this is actually, James actually said something about this. He says, instead of grumbling, I'm supposed to give thanks. God, this is hard, but I'm going to give thanks to you right now because I believe you're present. I believe you're going to grow me through it. I'm going to give thanks so I can grow. Second, I'm going to get wisdom. Okay, God, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I'm asking you for wisdom. And that may mean calling someone up and seeking counsel, seeking advice. So I'm gonna give thanks, I'm gonna get wisdom, and then I'm gonna grieve. If I need to grieve, I'm gonna stop and say, you know what, this is really hard, God. I don't know if I can do this, just what just happened, it hurts a lot. That's what James is calling us to do. Now I wanna conclude actually in a, a little bit different way. I'm gonna show you, this is an interview, an exchange, a conversation between uh, Stephen Colbert, most of you know Stephen Colbert is, and, and Anderson Cooper. And they bo- both of these men lost their fathers at age 10 and they share very poignantly, very powerfully, about how they, are, how they have processed and experienced that trial in their lives. And I don't know if you know this, but Stephen Colbert is a devout Roman Catholic um, and he has—he speaks quite eloquently of his faith and how suffering has 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 been, how the struggles, the trials that he's been through, have actually completed him. And we see this, con- this contrast. And this is not a critique of Anderson Cooper, but we see the contrast now in, in how Cooper is handling his his hardships. We want to roll that. If we got the right place, go ahead. Thanks, thanks, uh, Nick.
2: Full well, I actually. This is going to sound
1: weird. Go ahead. Turn it but, up a little bit.
2: Um, I for a long time, and and probably still to this day wish that I had a scar. I wish I had like a scar. Harry Potter. Yeah, no, like Harry, more like, like a Bond villain, like running down my eye, my face, that's unavoidable for people to see because it would sort of, it would just be a silent signal to everybody I meet that I'm not the person I was meant to be or I'm not the person that I started you're out en- being.
3: But you're entirely the person you were meant to be. I, I don't know,
2: maybe not. Maybe this is a warped version of of
3: so there's another timeline with a happier Anderson Cooper? Yeah. I mean, no, I
2: mean, there's not, it doesn't exist in an alternate universe, but it, but, yes, I, I guess if I guess that's what
3: I mean about, like, my, but that's your my, my experience, that is your my f- experience in the for example of my mother, right. and from what I read and, and experience of, of my particular faith, extremely imperfectly, admittedly, is that um, there isn't, another timeline, mm-hmm. and this is it, and the bravest thing you can do is to uh, accept with gratitude the world as it is, and then, you know, as Gandalf says, so do, so do all people who uh, who are in such times.
2: You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um,
3: I
0: remember on.
2: You went on to say, uh, what what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that?
3: Yes. It's a gift to exist. It's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. And I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those (laughs) things, because I've heard those from from both traditions but I didn't learn it that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened, is that I realized it. Mm-hmm. Is that, and it's, a, it's an odd, lo- oddly guilty feeling. It, it doesn't be, mean you I don't want, I don't want it to this. have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, <laughs> um, yeah. Not everybody is, right. and not, I'm not always, um, but it's the most positive thing to do. Then you have to be grateful for all of it. You, it's, you can't pick mm-hmm. and choose what you're grateful for. And then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Ampathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person, right. which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. Right. And so, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends, or with my wife, or with my children, is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering. And however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered mm-hmm. so that you can know that about other people. And that's that's what I mean. It's. It's about the f- f- fullness of your humanity. Mm-hmm. What's the point of being here and being human if you can't be the most human you can be? I'm not saying best, because you're going to be a bad person and a mm-hmm. most human. I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift.
2: Well, one of the things my mom uh, would often say is that she said, you know, I, I, uh, I never ask why me. Why did this happen to me? She would always say, uh, "Why not me? Why, why would me be exempt from sure what has befallen sure everybody, countless others over 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 the centuries?" And I, and I think that that's another thing that has helped me think. Yeah, of course, why not me? This is this is part of of, of being alive. I mean, this is the, the suffering is the you know sadness, suffering. These are all you
3: know. It's, you can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. And, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God does it too.
2: That mm-hmm.
3: you're really not alone. God does it too. I, I,
2: I heard you say something once. Uh, I God, there, just Nick. thought it was funny. You said, um, you were saying that...
1: Do you hear what he just said? The great gift of Christianity is that God suffers too that Christ has come down, that he has entered into our struggle, that there is nothing that you can ever experience in trial that Jesus himself has not not experienced, tasted more deeply, more bitterly, more grievously, and has triumphed through it. He's ahead in his forerunner. (laughs) He's up there going through the various terrain. He's navigated it all. He's ahead of us. He is our forerunner in the faith. And therefore, we, in the face of trials, can be confident. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's amazing, it's beautiful to think that you are not a God who wastes suffering, that you give us a gift of faith so we can see that through our crises, you indeed are completing us. Father, in this room are those who are struggling so greatly. You are, are their Father. Father, even this message is is difficult. It's tough medicine. Father, we we admit that so often the suffering in our lives is, is something that we can't at first recognize for our good. But we ask that you would give us a gratitude. You give us a faith that is confident a faith that starts, that assumes your presence, that assumes that you are at work, that assumes that there is is purpose, that there is a plan. Give us that faith, a faith that follows Jesus, a faith that Jesus himself had, believing that you indeed would protect and provide and preserve him. Father, give us that faith. Father, may, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in us and through us as we struggle in trials. In Jesus' name, amen.